Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. The views expressed on this program are not necessarily the views of this station. Do not use the show's content as the basis for any investment decisions. Instead, consult a financial advisor or conduct your own due diligence. Calls are pre-screened and the show was pre-recorded earlier this week. Rick Edelman is an investment advisor representative of Edelman Financial Services, a registered investment advisor which furnishes this program and also a registered principal of EF Legacy Securities, an affiliated broker-dealer, member FINRA, SIPC. This is the Rick Edelman Show. Now... Here's Rick Edelman. And a very happy weekend to you. Welcome to the Rick Edelman Show. I'm Rick Edelman on The Truth About Money. In the studio with me is Brenda Bell, Brandon Corso, Isabel Barrow. And uh, last week, Isabel, you mentioned that one of your favorite holidays was Halloween. Very true. Next week is, I think, one of the most important holidays coming up. Right. Veterans Day is coming up on the 11th. Observed this year on the 10th. But for those uh, who are listening and those clients of ours who have served, we want to say thank you. Um, Veterans Day was officially the end of World War I, and it officially ended on the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month in 1918. Wow. Yeah. So right now, uh, the oh, so US... So that's why it's always November 11th. That's exactly right. Yeah. So... Because I always, you know, we always have the Monday holidays now. They, 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 you know, we always celebrate Mondays for all the President's Day and whatever. And I never understood why Veterans Day wasn't one of those. Yeah, it's pretty neat. So That's awesome. Yeah. So there are uh, – U.S. Census Bureau reports that there are 18.8 million veterans living in the United States right now. And so now the question is, where are they? Uh, where are they? So they're uh, – well, they're all over, right? But there are a couple of places where they might want to be that are a little bit better from a perspective of jobs, weather, veterans per capita, health care. You know, are there VA uh, hospitals nearby, uh, veteran-owned businesses? And we found that there are uh, uh, some states that are a little better than others. And which are they? So we have uh, number one, won't be a surprise to everyone, Florida. Number two, Montana, New Hampshire. Wait, wait, wait. Montana? Exactly. I, I, I would have assumed you were going to say either Virginia, California, or Texas. And I say Virginia or California because of the ports right. in Norfolk and in San Diego, or Texas just because it's a tax-free state. Montana? Right. Why right. is that a number two location for veteran retirees? Well, you know, what? again, what went into the calculation was how many veterans are there, how many veteran-owned businesses. How many veterans can there be in Montana? Five, probably. I don't know. <laughs> so Virginia look, is on the list, by the way. So looking at the list, Rick... Montana got number one with health care. So that's what pulled them up so high. Got it. Quality of life, they're seventh. That and I'll agree with. Montana is an awesome state. Beautiful state. Economic environment, 24th. So, But overall, they came in at second. Virginia, you mentioned, they're 10th on the list. Texas is eighth. So who's three to seven? We have, uh, let's see, Wyoming, South Carolina. Lots of retirees moving there. Alaska, Maine. Texas, you said, Arizona. Some of the worst, by the way. Yeah, who comes in ranked number 50? Wait, let me see if I can guess this. Who <laughs> is the, what is the worst state 
for military <laughs> retirees. I'm going to say New York. I'm going to give you a hint. It's not really a state. The District of Columbia? That's it. D.C. ranks the worst on the list, and followed by New Jersey, Rhode Island, North Carolina, and Utah. Wow. And New York is nowhere among the worst. It's somewhere embedded in And I just mentioned New York only because of the tax. You know, New Yorkers pay more in taxes than just about anybody. New Jersey's very high, and so is California. But um, the District of Columbia has the worst place for veterans. That's really a shame because so many devote so much of their military careers to the Washington, D.C. area because of the Pentagon mm -hmm. and because of Capitol Hill, where they're dealing with lawmakers on military policy and, and the budget and so on. So that's, that's a real shame. Yeah, and you know, the average officer is retiring from the military at 45, so they're living in these states for a really long time. So the benefits they're getting from living in a really nice uh, area, close and, to health care. And you mentioned, you know, I refer to them as military retirees, but you're right, and in our experience, we serve so many members of the military, both current and former members. Uh, act, well, I should more accurately refer to it as active duty uh, versus not, because, you know, the Marines are always Marines, that they do tend to go work after their military career. Even assuming they put in their full 20, they do tend to then go work for a defense contractor or they work, um, they go into education, they, they teach at a university or, or they do something. And so they got their full military benefits at 45 or 50 years of age. And then they're earning a full salary and benefit package from their new job. They do that for 20 years. And by the time they're in their 60s and 70s, wow, they're, they're getting two sets of pensions. They're getting two payouts from 401k plans. They're, they're in really terrific financial condition. And God bless them. They deserve it more than anybody, right? Absolutely. So that's why you listed on the rankings methodology the employment opportunities for retire for these military retirees because ordinarily retirees wouldn't care about employment opportunities that's why florida is a big deal i'm just going to go play golf and shovel board right. but these folks are because they're in their 40s and 50s gainful employment is a big deal and so that was a uh, uh that's again why i'm going to ask them montana because their economic <laughs> prospects are not highly regarded around the country <laughs> compared to a lot of other states but I guess from a healthcare perspective, they're great. You, you, you mentioned the Marines. My wife just ran in the Marine Corps Marathon just a number of weeks ago, and she had friends come in to run with her from Charleston, South Carolina, uh, Chicago, and Philly. And so I took the kids down, and uh, there were a ton of people there, but just amazing patriotism. There were gentlemen, number one, there were plenty of people that ran pushing somebody in a wheelchair, right? We also saw plenty of soldiers run the whole thing with a flag, and so just being down there, uh, my kids loved it. I, of course, loved it. A um, bunch of Marines in, in uniform, which just kind of makes you feel safe. You're in a mob of people, but um, a lot of— We um, saw a platoon running in uh, precision formation, which was, you know, they were essentially jogging in perfect formation for the entire 26 miles, which was <laughs> amazing. We saw two Marines running backwards— Wow. They were just showing off. And it was nearly uh, 80 degrees, by the way. So it was one of the hottest marathons in a long time. It's, it's impressive. It's, um, uh, what was her time? Um, right at four hours. Awesome. Pretty good. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's, that's awesome. So that's really, so very exciting. November 
11th coming up next week. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you to all of our military uh, members and retirees. In addition to citing the top states for them, we also have the priciest states for those needing assisted living. So that just came out, Rick, and this is an annual survey by Genworth, and they look at uh, assisted living, the long-term care needs. And I think we're all well aware that these numbers are going up and up. Um, and so, and, and the other thing that we find is there's amazing differences between where you get care. Generally speaking, the closer you are to a uh, highly populated city, the care is going to cost a lot more as opposed to if you're uh, more rural. But do you have some of these numbers, Isabel? Yeah. So uh, the median annual cost is 45000 but I'll tell you it's, it's probably double that in a lot of places. And some of the most expensive states, just to kind of go, go through the list. So number one on the list is Delaware. Number two, Alaska. Three, New Jersey, followed by Massachusetts, Rhode Island, Maine, New Hampshire, Washington, Connecticut, and number 10, Virginia. How much is the cost in Delaware, the number one most expensive state for assisted living? According to Genworth, about $90,000. $90,000 a year, which works out to about, what, 7500 bucks a month, which is in addition to the expenses that you're already incurring to run the household. So how long would it take for a typical American family who suddenly discovers that mom or dad needs assisted living, how long would it take for them to go broke? Pretty fast, unless they have long-term care insurance. And that's why it's so vitally important that you do. We have to recognize that long-term care affects one out of two Americans over the age of 65. And the cost of care... The median, you said, is forty-five grand a year, roughly four grand a month, and it can be as bad as eight grand a month. And I'm willing to bet that for some folks with their situation, they could be spending even more than that. We've seen clients in uh, the New York metro area spending a hundred and twenty grand a year, ten grand a month. It won't take long for the typical American family to become completely impoverished, and this is why. You've got to pay attention to it because guess what happens, Brandon, when mom and dad run out of money? Well, they either are, go to a facility that's paid by Medicaid or often for all or part of it, they're asking family. Uh, and look, if, if you see your mom or dad or grandparents, for that matter, who need care and need assistance, it's, it's rare that you don't step forward and try to help. So I think that lesson is it impacts the entire family. And as we're sitting down planning for people's retirement, um, that's why it's so important to include not only the most immediate family members, but to have conversations about parents and children, because so often it does impact further down the line. Financial planning more than ever is an intergenerational activity. We've got to recognize what's going on with your mom and dad because their finances are going to impact your finances. We can assist you and the family in figuring all this out and protecting your parents, which is a way of protecting you. Let us help you. Call us at 888-PLAN-REC. That's 888-752-6742 or visit us online at ricedelman.com. That's rickedelman.com. I'm Rick Edelman here with Brandon Bell, Brandon Corso, Isabel Barrow. When we come back, spam as a currency. Lovely spam, wonderful spam, wonderful spam, wonderful spam, wonderful spam. 
The author of the number one bestseller, Rescue Your Money, coming up on The Rick Edelman Show. Welcome back to the program. Rick Edelman here. Brandon Corso, Isabel Barrow with me here in the studio. We've got a special segment for you, Food, Fitness, and Finance. And we're going to begin by talking about spam. No, I'm not talking about the stuff that clogs your email. I'm talking about the stuff that clogs your arteries. Look, I know that was long, but you have to hear that whole thing. I mean, if you, you know, if you didn't grow up with Monty Python, shame on you. And uh, anyway, so yes, I mean, why are we talking about spam on a personal finance show, Isabel? Well, because interestingly, in Hawaii, spam is under lock and key. Apparently, this is one of the things that is getting most stolen. More so than fine wines and luxury items, spam is getting uh, taken off the store shelves and being sold on the street for its street value. And apparently, spam must be pretty tasty because it's become a huge issue spam, in Oahu. Spam and its street value? <laughs> really? <laughs> well, they, they say the food, I mean, it stays good forever, right? It'll and, survive and a nuclear attack. Well, then that's part of the reason. But I think the article's talking about how this is drug addicts who are trying to steal things of high value that they can easily sell um, so they have money to buy their opiates. or So it's easier for a drug addict to monetize a can of Spam than a bottle of wine. Apparently everybody wants it. And it's easier to stuff it in your shirt because it's a small little can as opposed to a big bottle of wine. Well, so. so much so that, as Isabel said, it's under lock and key. So all these stores, it's reported, are actually locking it up. And so if you want to actually buy the spam, you got to go to the manager or somebody in the store and say, hey, can I buy some spam? Can you unlock it for me? And they probably say, why in the heck is it locked up? So Wow. Yeah. Um, I don't know about you guys. Have you guys ever t- tasted spam? No, no. Never? No, no ever. I've never, ever. No, I haven't. You have to understand, I grew up in a household where my mother made Scrapple. What is Scrapple sounds like it has spam in it. It's worse than spam. <laughs> so you take what's left over that wasn't good enough for spam, and that's in Scrapple. <laughs> Just look at the first five letters of that word. <laughs> and sh- I'm not even going to – I never ate that either, but I would watch her slice it, stick a fork into the side of it, and hold it over an open <laughs> flame on the stove. It was the most horrific thing that just being in the same room with it was carcinogenic <laughs> um so no i've never eaten spam i'm sorry to say well when i was growing up uh, we used to go camping and my dad would always bring a can of spam and i i don't think i was ever brave enough to try it but i, I don't know if my if my father knew all the great spam recipes that are out there like what these thieves must be making uh, after uh you know they're selling it on the street out of the back of their car spam sushi spam wow. fries <laughs> Spam grilled cheese with brie and peaches. Hmm, that sounds quite yummy. Oh, my goodness <laughs> gracious. So are we going to have a company event where it's a spam day? Let's hope not. 
Okay, so eating spam cannot possibly be good for your weight. I have to assume that people who eat a lot of spam are obese because if they're eating spam, what else are they eating? So there's got to be a link there in obesity. Absolutely. And, well, we don't know exactly if spam's causing the obesity, but uh, overeating is causing obesity. We do know that. Hey, speaking of spam and money, there's a new study that shows a correlation between what you eat and what you have. And a recent Johns Hopkins study found that uh, a 50-year-old who can go from obese to just simply overweight saves an average of $36,000 over their lifetime. There's a new car, too. Wow, wait, wait. By losing weight, you save tens of thousands of dollars. Is that because you're buying less food? No, it's, it, well, maybe, I guess partially, but, but uh, no, it's relating to the medical costs and, and savings that they're getting from uh, lower insurance premiums, uh, reduced number of sick days that they have to take, um, not being able to work at full capacity or just generally productivity losses. And with that weight loss often comes a reduction in some of the chronic diseases like diabetes or heart disease and cancer, and those are things that can be costly. Well, we see often that our health is, is very much related to our finances. And we've seen uh, stories, Rick and Isabel, where if you're stressed because of your finances, it impacts your health negatively. And so this is an example of if you lose weight, you, according to this survey, you're going to save the over the rest of your life. Um, but I'll take it a step further. You need to make sure your finances are in order because that by itself might actually improve your health. And so when we're sitting down with somebody doing a financial plan, I mean, health will come up in that conversation because whether we're talking about retirement age, uh, family health history is often important conversation that we might be dealing with if we're talking about long-term care, what their client's parents might have experienced. And so health does matter when it comes to your finances. And all of these things do interrelate, if you will, and trying to help you achieve whatever it is you're trying to achieve from a financial or retirement perspective. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think oftentimes we talk to clients who say, you know, that thinking or worrying about their money can keep them up at night. And um, all of those things will, you know, the worry and the concern is going to contribute to your health in general and possibly your weight as well. And a lot of times we hear people who say that, hey, I'm really worrying about money, but I'm not going to do anything about it. I'm not going to do anything about it because I'm not going to make any progress. I, I don't know how to fix it. And that, that really bothers us because you shouldn't put your head in the sand. If you're not happy about where you are financially, think about it for a minute. You don't just say, I give up. I'm not going to try. So because if you don't try to improve it, then you're likely to end up where, you know, in the gutter. But instead, if you say, wait a minute, I might not be able to achieve everything it is that I want to, but I'm going to sit down and do some planning, increase what I'm saving, make sure I'm protected on insurance and estate planning documents and so on. I bet you're going to make progress. And I, you think you're going to feel a lot better about making progress and maybe attaining half or three quarters of your initial goal than zero. Right. And it just starts with a simple phone call, right? It's just a, a phone call to someone who can help you, a financial planner uh, who's going to be able to sit down and, and review those numbers with you and try to give you some peace of mind to try to help you with that sleep at night factor. Um, so we would certainly welcome you to call us or, or call someone who you can trust who's a fiduciary. But if it does happen to be us uh, and we're in your area, please feel free to reach out at 888-PLAN-RICK or... RickEdelman.com. You know, it's fascinating. 
how we're drawing the connection between health and wealth, that the wealthier you are, the healthier you'll be. The healthier you make yourself, the wealthier you'll become. It's a virtuous cycle. And um, it reminds me of the old Jewish proverb, with money in your pocket, you are wise and you are handsome and you sing well too. <laughs> Where's the health element to that? Well, I, got... th I think the wise and handsome and singing well is all about, no? No, I, I mean, it, I, I love the proverb, but you owe it to yourself to become healthy, to improve your health, but also to improve your finances. If we can help you do that, Triple Eight Plan Rick, RickEdelman.com. You can click that red button. I want to talk to advisor, and we'd love to sit down with you to try to put you on the right course to achieve all it is you're trying to achieve. I'm Rick Edelman here with Brandon and Isabel, and let us know if we can help you at Triple Eight Plan Rick. Stay with us. The author of the New York Times. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Seller, the truth about your future. Coming up on The Rick Edelman Show. Rick Edelman Show continues. I'm Rick Edelman here with Brandon Corso and Isabel Barrow here in the studio. Triple H Plan Rick. That's rickedelman.com. We're going to Massachusetts. Matt, welcome to the program. Hey, guys. Thanks for taking my call. Our pleasure. Hey, so about a year and a half ago or so, I did speak to Rick, and uh, against his uh, advice, I uh, decided to go ahead and pay off my 30-year mortgage. I actually was able to do it in about 10 years. And uh, while I felt nervous about carrying the mortgage, um, I just didn't like the idea of paying the bank all that interest, and uh, just uh, being um, an independent contractor, not making the same money, you know, month to month, I just thought it'd be best for me not to have that mortgage. But in that 11 years, I didn't contribute anything to my IRA and my retirement account. So now I'm looking at that balance, and I'm not feeling like I'm going to have enough. I, uh, I'm 54 years old, and someone had approached me about a steady stream of income about getting an annuity, and I wanted to see your thoughts on that. So, Matt, how much was the mortgage that you paid off? Did you do it over time by making big big monthly payments, or did you yeah, basically yeah. write a check? Yeah, anytime I had extra money uh, from the business, uh, any, any, any profit, uh, I paid off about 160000 And do you have any other cash or investments? Yeah, I have a safety net um, of about 100000 and then I have other, I, I have other uh, investments that are, you know, are 
for my IRA. They're just regular, you know, investments that I have. Okay. So uh, you basically regret paying it off? Is that? Yeah, because I'm looking at the balance of saying, geez, you know, if I, you know, if I had maxed out my contributions, you know, in the, the 11 years, I might be sitting a little bit better. And now I'm afraid I'm just not going to have enough. Right. And someone had approached me about an annuity, which guarantees you income for life. And uh, I know right now, because I don't have a pension or anything like that, I'll be be living off of what I can, what I save, and you know, a little bit of Social Security. Well, and I, we're going to get to that annuity that you brought up a couple times. But now that the mortgage is paid off, which I wish you hadn't done, Rick told you not to. Um, you felt impelled to do it, but we, it is what it is. So that's spilled milk at this point. So, but now that you're not making that payment to the mortgage, do you not have more money that you can be more aggressively saving towards the retirement account? Yeah, uh, so a few months back ago, I opened up a simple IRA, and I've been putting uh, I've been putting two thousand dollars a month into that. Okay, so let's address Isabel uh, Matt's question about I think he's mentioned a couple times somebody's approached him about like a guaranteed income source. Okay, when we're talking about an annuity, there's really sort of two different types, one of which is a fixed annuity and the other of which is a variable annuity. So, Matt, do you know what type of an annuity is being offered to you? I, I believe he said a fixed annuity. Okay. So a fixed annuity, let's just talk about how that works. What you do with a fixed annuity is you take your lump sum of money and you hand it over to the insurance company. You say, here's my money. And the insurance company does some calculation based on how long they think you're going to live. And they say, all right, great. We're going to take your money, keep it. You can't ever get it back. And we're going to pay you monthly. And we're going to give you this XYZ amount of money, sort of like how a, a pension works. Mm -hmm. So that's appealing for a lot of people, especially people that are relatively conservative. And it sounds like you may be that, Matt, because you wanted to get your mortgage paid off and, and you were very nervous about that. That kind of tells me you might be a more conservative investor. Um, so the appeal of the annuity is I'm going to have this guaranteed income for life. However, here's the problem. The problem is the income never changes. Now, Matt, how old are you? Uh, 54. You're 54. So if let's say this annuity set it up and it's paying you, I don't know, a couple hundred dollars, thousand dollars a month, how much is that worth to you in 30 years? Right. I understand. Yeah. A lot less, right? Because mm -hmm. of yeah. the fact that inflation's eroded inflation. your, your purchasing power. So that's the big risk with an annuity is, is you basically guarantee that your money is not going to grow. And I think in your case, we have to look at this again from a, a bigger picture and say, okay, look, you've got this money going into retirement. You've got this money over here in safety net. You've got this money paid off on your mortgage. But we really need to look at the bigger picture here and figure out, you know, are you going to stay in this house? Matt, do you know, are you going to stay in this home that you have the mortgage paid off? Yeah, most likely. Yes. Okay. And what if you had to sell? Um, uh, well, I don't see any problem. If we did, we, we could sell, I guess. I mean. Okay. So I think at this point, what, what my recommendation to you would be is before you make a decision about locking up some of your money for life into something like a fixed annuity, you really need to sit down with someone and look at the bigger picture here and say, okay, how much cash do I need to have on hand um, in this kind of safety net fund? How much can I afford to save? What do I need to do with this house? Do I need to sell it or can I afford to stay in it? Or maybe I need to get another mortgage, right, Brandon? Potentially. I mean, Matt, you said you're going to be there a long time. Uh, but, but Isabel asked about, are you conservative? So do you consider yourself pretty risk averse? Um. I guess now that I'm getting older, I, I, I'm a little bit more conservative. I, I, I hate that. I don't want to owe anything because I like to retire, you know, 
in 10 years, not 20. You know, I, I love those calls when people call into your show and they're like, you could retire tomorrow. Well, have you and sat down and looked at, have you I'm looked sorry? at the income you want to have, Matt, and, and how long you do need to work before you can pull it off? No, I, I mean, I, I think I, I'm not asking for a lot. I'm just thinking like maybe 35000 a year is what I probably need um, just to kind of sustain the lifestyle that I'm used to. And um, But I just don't know how long that's going to last me with, with what I have now. And that's why that guaranteed income seemed kind of uh, – Kind of like a good idea, and you know. Then I'm also thinking like maybe real estate, but then again, I'm not a very good landlord. I've never been a landlord, so I don't know if I want to get into all that. Well, so there are a lot of different issues, right? So we've kind of bounced from topic to topic, um, but you've got a goal, which is you mentioned you'd like to retire. You said that when you hear somebody that can pull it off earlier than they thought, or by the age at which they desired, it sounds appealing. You yeah. you mentioned thirty five thousand. I guess my biggest point would be. There are specific answers to the questions you're asking, and a good advisor can sit down with you and say, okay, Matt, if 35000 in today's dollars is what it takes to achieve your lifestyle goals for you and your family, where are we? Where do we need to be? Are you saving enough? At what age can you pull it off? So there are answers that are not too difficult um, if you take the time to sit down with a financial advisor who does this day in and day out, can take a look at where you are, where you're trying to get, and then determine, are you on pace? Oh, after we do that, it is a lot easier to talk about the different products that can get okay. you there. Because I don't think the annuity is the right answer for you, but I don't know quite enough about you. Um, they are aggressively sold, and so they can make the pitch pretty appealing. But when we look at annuities, the advantages and disadvantages, and compare it to the other investment options and what you can do outside of the insurance contracts, to us, almost all the time, there is no comparison. So, Matt, you might be able to retire in 10 years or you might be able to retire tomorrow. But in order for us to be able to help you with that, you need to talk to an advisor. We have plenty of advisors around your area in Massachusetts. Give us a call at 888-PLAN-REC. Okay, sounds great. Thank you so much, guys. Well, we wish you the best and it's our pleasure. So if you have questions like Matt related to the investment products that you're being pitched or more specifically to your goals and your objectives and what it is you're trying to achieve for you and your family, Triple Eight Plan Rick. You can also go to our website, rickedelman.com, and there's a red button in the top right corner that you can click, I want to talk to an advisor. Rick Edelman here. We're taking telephone calls. Brandon Corso, Isabel Barrow with us in the studio. We're headed off to La Plata, Maryland. David is on the air. How are you doing, David? Good, good, good. How are you? Terrific. How can we help? I got a question about. I've heard you mention in previous uh, programs about um, using rental properties and and taking out as much of a mortgage as possible. But my question is, I'm I'm currently uh, using my rental property um, uh, kind of set aside as an IRA, if you will, for or a uh, uh, college savings for my for my kids. And you know, with rates being as low as they are, I'd hate to. I hate the idea of having a mortgage for you know for another thirty years on it, but. Part of me says it makes sense to kind of grab money now while rates are relatively low. I mean, I don't think I'll be able to borrow it in five or ten years when my kids start going to school. But, you know, it's it's um, um, is it better to take it out now or is it, you know, wait, build up some more equity in it and take it out in five or ten years? Uh, I mean, nobody's a, a uh, uh, can predict the future, but just kind of wanted your thoughts on uh, on on that subject. David, what's the interest rate on this mortgage today? Uh, it's at five percent right now. Okay, and is it cash flow positive? You have somebody in the property paying you rent. 
It is. It is. And, and that's, you know, it, it's kind of a, a no brainer for me that, that, you know, I collect more than I pay out in, uh, in, in mortgage and expenses. Okay. You know, at first glance, I don't know that it makes sense to refinance. You, do you need cash for any particular reason? No, I don't. Okay. It might make sense to sit down with somebody to find out if you did refinance what your rate would be. We'd want to look at how many years are left on your existing mortgage. Is it a fixed rate? Is it a variable rate? But because it's not your primary residence, I suspect you could lower the rate a little bit, but not a whole lot. So I don't see a driving reason for you to refinance at this time. Yeah, it's one of those where, where, you know, at most I'd probably be able to pull out is about, you know, 45 to 50,000 out of it. Uh, based on the equity that I have in it, but you know, it, it, it's is it really going to you know get lower than four and a quarter, maybe four and a half at today's current rates for well, investment property? Brandon is right. From an interest rate perspective, there's not a big motivation to do this. However, from mm-hmm. a real estate investor perspective, you might want to consider it. Now, I want to highlight. I'm not endorsing what I'm about to say. I'm simply acknowledging the strategy that many real estate investors use. The big mm-hmm advantage in their mind, people who invest in real estate, you know, they buy rental properties, is the fact that they can borrow as much as possible, minimizing their cash. In other words, if you had $100,000 to invest in a bunch of mutual funds, you would go do exactly that. You would invest hundred grand in a mutual funds. But that's not what real estate investors do. Real estate investors would take their hundred grand and split it into 10 piles of 10 grand each, and they would go buy 10 properties of a hundred grand each, 10% down payments on each one. And they would buy a million dollars worth of real estate with that hundred grand. Real estate investors believe that the leverage is how the profits are generated. I don't know why they feel that way. They wouldn't do it with mutual funds, but they're happy to do it with real estate. So if you have equity in that rental property, if you can pull out 50 grand, you have the ability to go buy a second rental property with that 50 grand. Now you have two houses instead of just one. I'm not endorsing the idea, not recommending the idea, but I'll tell you that if you were to talk to real estate investors, that's exactly what they would tell you to do. Right. So consider that. I mean, if you were going to play the game of being a landlord and a real estate investor and you're going to generate rental income, the whole purpose of the rental income is to help you make the mortgage payment. And then you're basing your profits on the future growth in the value of the property. That's how real estate investors do it. To me, that's very risky. It's very scary. But this is how real estate investors play the game. Okay? That's the only other reason I can think of for you to refinance and cash out. Is there, it would be to buy if I was going to buy another property or... Okay. Right. That makes right. sense. Right. I appreciate it. Okay. So there you go, David. Just another school of thought. Thanks so much for calling. I'm Rick Edelman. This is The Truth About Money with Brendan and Isabel. Triple Eight Plan Rick. Online, by the way, at rickedelman.com. That's ricedelman.com. Click that red button. I want to talk to an advisor, and we'll get you the answers you need to all your personal finance questions. founder of one of the nation's largest independent investment advisory firms coming up on the rick edelman show
Welcome back to the program. Rick Edelman here in the studio with me is Brenda Bell, Brandon Corso, Isabel Barrow. Marnie's in Medina, Ohio. Hi, Marnie. How are you? Hi, Rick, and uh, it's a pleasure to speak with you. Thanks for taking my call. We're happy to do so. How can we help? Uh, I have an HSA, which I fully contribute to every year and have done so for the past three years. Currently, I have 3000 in cash and about 5400 in investment balance. I pretty much understand how an HSA works and all the tax benefits of having one. And I recently wondered about the following idea. Rather than immediately reimbursing myself for the medical expenses, is it beneficial to save my approved medical receipts and reimburse myself at a later date when I could use the money? Isabel? So I think it's a really common question. Uh, There's a lot of appeal with um, an HSA, a health savings account, paired with a high deductible plan. The idea is that there's money growing tax deferred. And a lot of people look at that as, you know, a benefit, a long-term tax deferred growth. However, the flaw in that thinking is that even though currently in your case, your income and your cash could pay it out of pocket, potentially, there's always the idea that there might be some unexpected medical bills that could happen you know, in the near term, Murphy's Law says that you might be in a position where all of a sudden you have a medical emergency. And of course, that's when the market crashes and now you need to pull the money out. So for that reason, I'd say it's not a good idea to invest the money in the HSA plan, considering a medical emergency is always an unplanned event. Marnie, if I could just add, I mean, in theory, what you described is spot on because these plans do offer, if you look at it, very attractive tax benefits. It's pre-tax, it's tax deferred. And when you pull it out for medical expenses, it's tax free. But what I think we're worrying about is your level of cash reserves. So if you had a higher level of cash, then to basically bank that HSA year after year after year makes a lot of sense. But as we look at how much you have in the bank, I'd be concerned that you have more out-of-pocket and you don't have the money in cash. You've got to go to the HSA and the market would have dropped. Therefore, we would feel much more comfortable, Marnie, if you had 30000 in cash rather than 3000 in cash. So the real message here is to focus on building your cash reserves to a higher value. May I add on to that? Sure. Uh, in full disclosure, right now, I am able to pay for any medical expenses out of pocket, thereby, thereby looking at the HSA, as you say, as an investment, another investment vehicle. And my thinking was, since there was no expiration date on paying myself back, if I let that money grow for, say, several years, and I don't have a whole lot of time uh, till I tap into Medicare, but if I did have you know, several years, be able to reimburse myself at a much later date, having kept all those approved medical receipts on file just in case of an audit, I wondered if this might be uh, a way to let this investment grow significantly. Yes. That was my thinking. Yes. If, in fact, all of the assumptions you've laid out prove true, then your strategy is fine. If you are highly confident that you would never need to tap into the HSA for the payment of unexpectedly high medical bills, uh, then sure, uh, it makes perfect sense. In our experience, not very many people have that luxury, which is why we say it, it's a great idea on paper. doesn't really work in the real world very well. But if you're confident that you can pull it off, yes, the concept is sound. 
Thank you very much. I appreciate your uh, words of advice. You're very welcome, Marnie. Thank you so much for calling. You can do the same thing at 888-PLAN-RIC. Call that number anytime. Our colleagues around the country will be happy to help you out and get you the answers you need to your financial questions. That's 888-752-6742. I got the impression that Marnie wanted an answer that she wanted to hear as opposed to an answer that we wanted to give. I agree. I think it's really common. You have people who want to have confirmation of their opinion when they come and talk to a financial planner. But what's interesting is someone who's going to be objective and actually consider all the things they're not considering that are an important part of our opinion and our discussion when we're giving it to her. So it's tough because sometimes people only want to hear what they want to hear. But when we talk to them about alternatives, um, sometimes it's now you've got to change your plans. Yeah. I mean, we you don't want a financial advisor who gives you the easy answer, who's an enabler. You want somebody who's going to give it to you straight and tell you what's in your best interest, even if as the advisor, we get the sense that, okay, this isn't what the client wants to hear. It's still what they need to hear. And and that, I think, is what you need to look for in an advisor, not somebody who's going to tell you what you want to hear, but what you need to hear. How often do you encounter this and how do you respond and, and work with a client who is not really happy about hearing what you're saying? You have to sit back and understand what's really driving um, the reason behind why they're so focused on that particular point in their financial picture. So stepping back as a financial planner and understanding their perspective, what are their drivers, what are their goals? And once you understand that, you can come across, you may come across an obstacle where maybe they're not totally thrilled with your answer and you can step back and put it in perspective and at least hope that they'd be willing to understand. Now, you know their whole financial picture and you can see not just in in their silo, the rest of everything that's going on. And, And here's why you need to look at our recommendations, because you may be hurting other parts of the big picture. So if you uh, have a financial situation, we encourage you to talk with a financial planner. And in fact, it might be helpful if you talked to two or three, because if two of them are just nodding their heads saying, yeah, sure, go for it and let me help you so that I can earn the commission selling you the product that you want to go ahead and buy. But a third financial planner says, you know what, I don't think it's in your best interest and here are the reasons why and here's an alternative course of action that might be better for your situation. That could give you an opportunity for some sober reflection to evaluate and challenge your own assumptions and your own expectations so that you don't get yourself into trouble unnecessarily or uh, avoidably. We're happy to serve as that sounding board for you. Uh, if if nothing else, you might get verification and validation of your thinking, but it also might give you an opportunity to consider some things that you might have not considered or things that you might have missed. Let us know if we can help you at 888-PLAN-RIC. That's 888-752-6742. Or online at rickedelman.com. That's ricedelman.com. Click that red button. I want to talk to an advisor, and we'll help you like we've helped thousands of folks just like you. I'm Rick Edelman. You're listening to the... With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Truth about money. Providing personal finance advice for over 25 years. This is the Rick Edelman Show. 
This is the Rick Edelman Show. Now, here's Rick Edelman. Welcome back to the program. Rick Edelman here. Brandon Corso, Isabel Barrow in the studio with me. Gene and I have been married almost 35 years, as she likes to refer to it as two wonderful years. Um, <laughs> you, you two have been married less because you're younger. How long have you been married, Brandon? Oh, almost 10 years now. Isabel? 11 years. Okay, so think back to when you were still single. You can remember this more easily than me. Okay. When you went on dates. Right. It's a first date. Okay. Who paid for dinner? In, in my cases, I would say I paid for all of those dinners. Isabel? Yeah, same. Absolutely. He paid? Or you paid? <laughs> Not Brandon, but the guy paid? No, yeah, the guy paid. The guy paid. Yeah, absolutely. And so um, is that still the case, do you suppose? I get the feeling that that's changing a little bit. Uh, and I don't have any personal examples, but I just, I, I've kind of feel You haven't like been on any first dates No, lately. I haven't, nor has anybody told me about it. I just get the feeling that that's, it's becoming more acceptable, I think, for, I guess, splitting the cost of dates. Uh, what, Isabel, what do you think? So two-thirds of people believe that the man should still pay. One-third of people think that it should be split. And 4% think the woman should pay. Wow. So, but, uh, you know, it's uh, certainly it might be shifting a little bit. So two-thirds still believe that the man should pay on the first dinner. And I'm wondering, would it be a date wrecker if something occurred that was unexpected by one party or the other, where he said to her, let's split the bill, or if she offered to split the bill, and would he feel indignant? Um, I mean, I, I can't imagine. Or relieved. I don't know. Well, I, I would think that just the offer wouldn't make somebody feel badly about it. But on the other hand, I think you mentioned if the man's, you know, not paying or saying, hey, let's split this. I don't I think it could wreck the date or wreck the, the relationship moving forward it has the potential to anyway. But at what point do you transition away from the assumption that the that he's paying for the meal because he did on the first meal? Two-thirds of the time, that's what everybody wants to have happen. At what point do you transition to where she pays or the bills get split? So I think most people say it's around the, around the third date or so that it's acceptable to go from, uh, from he's paying everything to they're splitting the bill. So I've never heard that. So, But that sounds kind of like an awkward – how do you even – broach that idea or that subject on a date. And so I think as a society, we're pretty slow to talk about money. Rick, we've often talked about on this show how um, we don't often talk to our parents or we don't talk to our children about money, and we've always encouraged people to communicate. Well, I have to assume, you're absolutely right, Brandon, I have to assume by the time you get to a third dinner date, you're enjoying each other's company. You've now had hours together, and you're feeling pretty comfortable about just being able to say, hey, how about we split this one tonight? The question I would have is who raises that notion? Yeah, is it he yeah. or she who brings it up? I think it would have to be her. Otherwise, I can see that there might be uh, some offense taken there. There's that awkwardness there. Yeah. And so the, here's the real question I want to ask. How long should you wait? And, and by the way, the reason I'm raising this, I mean, let's face it. The majority of the people listening to this radio show are not 20-somethings. I mean, we, we know that about radio generally, and especially about a personal finance show. And although there's a whole lot of folks in their 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s who are married and have been married a long time, there's an equally large number of folks who are not with a partner 
or significant other, and this very well is applicable to you in your situation. At what point, hence my question here, at what point, how long should it be before you talk about finances with the person you're seeing? I don't know that there's a hard and fast rule, right? So everybody's going to decide based on the dynamics of that relationship and how many dates they've been on and how you know, easy or how frequent this conversation comes up. But what I think matters is that you get there, right? So is it date three? Is it date five? Is it date 10? I don't think that matters as much, Rick and Isabel, as the fact that you get there. There's $1.3 trillion in student debt. So the chances are, if you're in your 20s or 30s and you're sitting in a date, that one or both of you have some debt. And you do need to talk about finances, um, what you view to be um, important to you financially, debt, how to pay for things. You've got to get there. I don't think it matters so, so much how quickly you do. And I think I agree with you. And I would also add that it matters that you get there well before the wedding day. Right. But I think by the time you're you're officially together or or moving in together, you should have had that conversation. You know, 60 percent of people said that they would uh, they would be unwilling to date someone who came out of out of prison. But 30 percent said that credit card debt was a critical factor in deciding when so, to date. Someone. So I don't have a problem if you're an ex-con, but I do have a problem if you owe money to master. <laughs> exactly. Okay. Exactly. And the same for student loan debt. I mean, it's not just a question of, uh, you know, your credit card debt, but really what are all your debts? What's your income? I mean, when do you start asking somebody how much money do you make? And, and is that scary if they make a lot more or a lot less than you do? And yet it's astonishing how often people do not want to talk about it. You made that point, Brandon, that we'll talk about politics. We'll talk about religion. We'll talk about sex. We will not yet talk about money with other people. And so we don't know how much money my date is earning. I don't know how much money they have. I don't know how much money they owe. I don't know their attitude about money necessarily. And we need to find this out because if there's going to be a permanency to this relationship, I'm going to inherit all of the above. And if that relation turns into something permanent, um, look, all of a sudden you're a team. You're not on your own. So if you're in a permanent relationship, if you get married, you need to be talking back and forth to your spouse about what is your situation, and let's come up with goals together. That becomes the key. Over time, you figure out how many dates it's going to take. But over time, you've got to go from being um, on opposite teams to being on the same team. Only then are you going to be able to sit down and figure out, okay, look, we're doing this together. What's our situation together? What are our goals together? What do we want the, our financial future to look like together? And what you can do to broach this subject, if you find it awkward, is you go on the next dinner date and you say to the person opposite the table from you, I was listening to Rick Edelman on the radio, and he said I had to ask you the following question. Yeah, I love it. Blame you. I, it's perfect. <laughs> exactly. I've got a checklist here. <laughs> Spreadsheet. I've, yeah, I've got this, yeah. this, this form I want you to fill out yeah. in triplicate, uh, have it notarized, and I want to see audited financials by the time we uh, get home. And if the relationship becomes permanent and there's a wedding in the future, we've talked often about wedding costs in America, but there's another implication here. You need to pay attention if your friends or if your siblings are emerging into a serious relationship because if you can anticipate that they are going to get married, it means you are probably going to be invited to the wedding. Yikes. 
And that means you are going to incur expenses as a guest. And that is, uh, this number really, really uh, frightened me. The average wedding attendee is spending about $1,400. Wow. $1,400. $1,400 to attend? Per, per wedding. Per wedding. And I know a lot of friends of mine that were, you know, in their 20s and 30s that were going to three, four, five weddings a summer. It's called wedding season, you know. So $1,300, $1,400 per wedding. What is that money paying for? It's paying for a, a new dress? Well, so I think some of it. But surprisingly, clothes was not as high on the list as travel and wedding gift. $330 for a wedding gift. I wish I had all these people coming to my house. I was getting <laughs> yeah, married wow. again. Uh, I thought yeah. 100 bucks was kind of the, the number, but yeah. it's been a long time since I've been to a wedding. Yeah. So, so you know, yes, yeah, some of it's going towards clothing, but uh, about 530 travel. That's, you know, plane tickets. You have to rent a hotel room where you're going, uh, maybe a rental car. Um, uh, but, yeah, the, the majority of the rest of it is going to that wedding gift. Wow. So recognize that when it comes to personal finance, you not only have to save money for the bad things that might happen in life, like, you know, an accident or injury or illness. You've also got to save for the good things that happen in life, because whether whatever happens to you is good or bad, it's going to cost money. Helping you figure out your finances, anticipate this, build the cash reserves necessary so that you can enjoy and celebrate these major milestones of life is what we're all about. Call us at 888-PLAN-RIC. That's 888-752-6742. We have offices all across the country, and we're ready to help you like we've helped thousands of others just like you. Visit us online if you prefer at rickedelman.com. That's ricedelman.com. And click that red button. I want to talk to an advisor. Or call us again at 888-PLAN-RICK. I'm Rick Edelman here with Brandon and Isabel. Stay with us. We'll be back. Talkers Magazine, as one of the heavy hundred talk show hosts in America, this is The Rick Edelman Show. Welcome back to the program. Rick Edelman here in the studio with me, Isabel Barrow and Brandon Corso. Isabel? So... Recently, we've been, uh, unfortunately, uh, hearing a little bit uh, about some of the passing of some of our superstars, Hugh Hefner, uh, Prince. Really? You want to start <laughs> off with Hugh Hefner as one of our superstars? Well, there's a, I have a reason behind it. So, you know, we, had, we have uh, the th- three cases here of, of people that died with different uh, legal documents on hand and how it, it affected the outcome of really with the way that we're looking at uh, their estates. So uh, the three are Prince, Tom Petty, and Hugh Hefner. Now, we, you know, we heard, we've heard about this situation with Prince now for the last year, year and a half since he passed away. Um, he passed away with no estate documents on file. Um, and it has created a, a huge nightmare for his family and for his beneficiaries, for lack of a better word, since he didn't really have any beneficiaries, technically speaking. And uh, the attorneys are are fighting an ongoing legal battle to try to determine who gets the benefit of his estate. Um, And to contrast that with Tom Petty. So Tom Petty, as we know, passed away of a cardiac arrest uh, earlier uh, last month. 
and he had a do not resuscitate on file. So when he passed, you know, when he went to the hospital and was sick, um, you know, he was held on a life support for some period of time, and the family was able to produce a legal document that he had that said. I don't want that. Take me off of life support. And his wishes were then acted upon. And that's a really important thing for a lot of people to have that they don't have. So I think we can agree that both of these artists and musicians were incredibly talented, Prince and Tom Petty. But in terms of what they did to plan for their estates and their loved ones, so we can contrast, they're very, very different. So you mentioned that Prince's estate is kind of held up in probate because he didn't do documents. And let's face it, he died somewhat suddenly. He didn't expect to pass away, and that happens to many of us. But he had not sat down and looked at what documents do I need to protect my estate to make sure things pass to who it is I want them to pass to, perhaps minimize estate taxes or inheritance taxes within individual states. And so and then so you contrasted that with Tom Petty, who had an estate planning document that was important to him at the end of his life. And so there's a really big lesson here. It, this is a big deal. Nobody knows, for the most part, when you're going to pass away. And so there's lots of times we're surprised by it. But You've got to sit down prior to something happening, whether it be death or, I'll add, becoming incapacitated, and make sure all your wishes are in place so nothing goes wrong. That's really the goal with estate planning is to sit down and say, look, what do I want to happen if and when one of these things occurs? And we live busy lives, and it's not what we want to talk about, mortality, and make some hard decisions and spend a little bit of money, but it's incredibly, incredibly important that we do. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, uh, you know, I mentioned Hugh Hefner before. Uh, Hugh Hefner is, is a case in point in this as well. You know, at last check in 2008, he, or 2010 rather, he had an estate worth about $43 million. But as we know, he's got multiple ex-wives and he's got some kids as well um, that he wanted to take care of. And he had really a case study of um, estate planning done because at the time of his death, he basically had no assets. You know, he was living in the Playboy Mansion sort of rent free. And um, he had set up his estate documents so well in advance and so well that there really was no or hasn't been to this point any fighting between the family. Everyone is peacefully uh, moving on uh, with the loss of Hugh and, and they're not fighting about the money and, and this isn't is, that the key that is the point the fact that estate planning we discover more than any other subject of personal finance creates family fights who gets what uh, I wanted granddad's coin collection why did he give it to you uh, I had no idea that you were inheriting uh, the house um, I didn't realize that Granddad had lent you money, and I didn't get that before, and now all of a sudden the estate is lower in value. Uh, I have no idea what the intentions were. Um, there was no communication, and it creates family fights, as people are sometimes accidentally disinherited, sometimes deliberately so. And we see power plays often occurring. And even though siblings, you might argue, all love each other, siblings often have spouses, and the in-laws get involved. Um, people are sometimes further away geographically. Uh, there can be manipulation and undue influence in revision of legal documents. There's all kinds of stuff that can occur. And it all begins with, do you have the documents in place? Have you bothered to take the time 
because it's not so much for you. If you're dead, your problems are over. The issue is for the survivors. And so the vital importance of maintaining peace in the family is really, I consider to be, the number one goal of estate planning. And I think you do that two ways, Rick. One is the planning and documents, and two is communication. So let's go back to number one, because this can be overwhelming, right? And so if you haven't done this planning, or if you have and it's been a decade or two, these terms and these documents are not fresh in your mind. So what is it that you need to make sure that everybody, when you pass away within your family, understands what's happening and is, is satisfied and content with what you do? So you've got to have a will and or trust in place. What does that do? That gives instruction. When you pass away, what do you want to happen to your property? You often, within these documents, have something called a letter of intent that talks about more the jewelry, artwork, furniture. So these are a must. This is a necessity. On top of that, you need something called a power of attorney, both for health care and for your finances. And that's if you can't make that decision while you're alive, you've got to have pick somebody in a legal document that can step in at that time for you. You also want some advanced medical directives like a living will, um, again, to nominate people if you're alive so people can step in and be your advocate um, for that necessity if it is to occur. And that's the first point, the documents themselves. The second point, Isabel, that Brandon mentioned was communication. Right. Talk to your Talk to your kids. Um, talk to your parents. Um, you know, Thanksgiving is coming up, and this is a great time for all of us to um, sit down and have the conversation. And it's uncomfortable, yes. Um, you might not want to do it because you're talking about either your death or your parents' death, and it's morbid and it's uncomfortable. However, it has to be done because, you know, I know in my family we've had sort of two different experiences, and I think everyone can remember an experience with either a family member or a friend where um, the wishes weren't conveyed and there was infighting in the family. And, uh, you know, in, in my uh, my mother's family, when my grandfather passed away, I don't think she's talked to her sister since then. Um, yet my father's side of the family, my grandmother left detailed instructions, and I mean detailed, down to the flowers she wanted on her casket. Wow. That's awesome. And, you know, it went pretty smoothly, um, really, because we knew what she wanted, and it was conveyed, and she had little notes of things to write in her obituary, et cetera. And, and maybe that's extreme, but you know what? If that's what you want, tell someone. Sit down with them and talk it through. So at Thanksgiving dinner, you say to your father, Dad, would you like some cranberries, and where would you like to be buried? <laughs> so, And I would say practice that. <laughs> I'd say it over and over and over again so when it has to come out, um, it's not as awkward, but look, sometimes prodding family members um, is going to help them, right, if they haven't addressed this. Or perhaps they have, but they haven't reviewed it. That's incredibly important because after 5, 10, 15 years, your wishes may have changed. There may have been people that have been born into the family or passed away, or perhaps something's happened within a state tax or law that needs to be updated. So if you or a friend or family member are dealing with these issues, perhaps you're already dealing with an inheritance or estate planning issue, here's a way you can learn a little more. We've created a webinar on estate planning, and it covers the importance of family dynamics and how to begin thinking about the question, who gets what? Plus, we'll give you information on the common mistakes people make and the one thing you must do when it comes to wills and trusts. You can watch the webinar for free. It's simple and easy. Just go to edelmanfinancial.com slash seminars. 
Scroll down for the list of webinars and you'll see estate planning. So again, go to edelmanfinancial.com slash seminars for our estate planning webinar and a whole bunch of other financial topics. I'm Rick Edelman here with Brandon and Isabel. And let us know if we can help you at Triple H Plan Rick. Stay with us. the author of the number one national bestseller, The Truth About Retirement Plans and IRAs, coming up on The Rick Edelman Show. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome back to the program. Rick Edelman here in the studio with me, Isabel Barrow and Brandon Corso. We're taking your telephone calls. We're going to Connecticut to talk to Gary. Gary, welcome to the program. Hi, thank you uh, for taking my call. Uh, I'm planning on leaving my company at the end of December, uh, and I have, I'm 63. I have two choices. I can take either a pension or a lump sum, and uh, I want to get get your opinions on um, on the pros of, and cons of uh, each way. Okay, sure. So, Isabel, what are some of the advantages and disadvantages of each option here? So, it sounds like your employer is giving you a choice, saying you can either take an annuity from us, or you, we're going to give you, or going to hand you some money, and you can choose to do with it whatever you want. So, okay, right. let's just, is that is right, okay. So, Let's just talk about the annuity option first. So what that is, is you have no access to the money, but you're getting a monthly check from uh, your employer as, as a, in the form of a pension that you're going to receive for the rest of your life. There is a lot of pro to that, right? You're getting a, a regular stream of income that you can count on and you know it's not going to change. That's also a bad thing, right? Because it's not going to change. So it's not going to go up with inflation, most likely. Uh, most of them don't. And the other thing is that the other uh, con would be, well, how long is that employer going to be able to pay? Do they have enough funds in their, uh, you know, in their pool to be able to pay this forever? What if you live to be 120 years old? So there are some problems with taking the annuity option. But again, you know exactly how much you're going to get every single month. And, and that's a good thing uh, for a lot of people. Now, when we talk about the lump sum option. Typically, how that works is you're able to get that money up front and roll it over probably to a retirement account. So you can continue to defer taxes on it and you can do with it what you choose. So it gives you a heck of a lot of flexibility to say, here's how I want to invest that money to make it work best for me, given my circumstances. Um, so Gary, let's just talk about your circumstances. Have you um, have you prepared for retirement by saving in other ways than just this pension? Yes, um, uh, I, have, um, I have a 401k. Uh, so do you want to know what my pension would be or any of that? Yes, please give yeah. us those numbers. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So the pension would be 28000 and that's with a 75% uh, survivor uh, benefit. 
Um, I have a four one. So the lump sum would be four hundred fifty six thousand. Uh, I also have um, five hundred eighty eight thousand in a four hundred one k. Okay, Gary, are you in good health? Yes. And how old is your wife? Uh, Sixty one. Okay. And have you looked at? So are you going to retire for good? You're going to leave this employer you mentioned, I think, in December. Are you retired, retired at that point? Yes, I'm going to collect Social Security as well, which will be 24000 And have you looked at the amount of income that you and your wife need, that you desire in retirement, and looked at your all your resources, the pension including, but also the 401k and other investments, to determine uh, is it an income that you can sustain? Yes. Yes, we have, and uh, we, we, we do have an advisor, uh, and my wife is collecting a pension as well, and she's doing some part-time work. Uh, so uh, if, I, if I did the pension, we'd be fine, but when I found out that I could get 456000 as a lump sum, uh, I did figure, though, with that 456000 following the 4% rule, it wouldn't make 28,000 a year for that, you know, for that lump sum, it would be 6.1% I'd have to take out. Right. But am I looking at the wrong way considering I also have another uh 588 in my 401k, which I plan on rolling over to an IRA. Well, there's one part of the equation that uh you're not focusing on, I think quite enough, and you said it right that if you look at $28,000 of income and you compare it to the lump sum, and you do the math, you look at it and say, well, that's just over 6% of the total lump sum amount. And you're looking at it and saying, well, if there's a 4% rule, and that's really just a rule of thumb, which we really don't like, but it says that if you have a pot of money and you need the money to last throughout your retirement, and you need it to go up with inflation, that a 4% rate of withdrawal is, again, a rule of thumb, nothing more than that. And so, but that go up with inflation part is the reason that it's 6% if you take the annuity. Because remember, 10, 20 years from now, it's still 28000 And when you take money from a pot of investments, if you're taking, I'm going to call it 3 3.5%, maybe 4%, it's designed that that should be able to go up with inflation. So that, I think, is uh, the disconnect in those numbers. D does that make sense? Yes. So you mentioned that if you take the annuity, you do have enough income. So do you have more than enough? So if you did a, a rollover, if you took the lump sum rollover, and let's pretend you just took 4% from the 450000 is that enough income for you and your wife? Um. Well, no, not four percent of the four hundred fifty-six thousand. Now, that would only be eighteen. I mean, it would. Yeah, I guess it would be enough. But uh, um, but you'd like to have more. Yeah, right. Okay. I'd like to, she I'd said like that to perfectly. Start out with you know what my pension would have been. Right. So uh, your wife is sixty-one. Right. Is she going to be taking Social Security next year when she turns 62? No, she's um, she she was uh, in um, government employed, so she has a pension of 65,000, which uh, has COLA increases. 
Got it. Okay. So she has a pension. She's not going to be receiving any Social Security at any point in time. You have 24000 from Social Security, and you're living on that, uh, or, or you're saying that that, that 24000 and that 65000 so what is that, 89000 that would cover our that would cover our expenses. Okay, it would cover your expenses, but you'd like to have more. <laughs> so um, here, here's here's the thing: if you look at the way that the, the pension is going to work, it's going to pay you that twenty eight thousand dollars now, which might be great if you want that extra money to to spend on discretionary things like like travel or gifts or you know having some fun when you first retire. But it's going to feel like a lot less every single year as you go on. And instead, if you have access to that lump sum, well, in the beginning, you might be able to take that 28000 if if you work with an advisor and, and you figure out a good strategy to take some in the beginning and maybe taper that off later or take a little less up front so that you know you can have more later. But, you know, I think we have to, again, look at this in the context of your entire big picture here. And let's look at all these different income streams, how they might grow with inflation and how your expenses might grow too. Because Mm -hmm. your, your wife's pension has a cost of living adjustment. But, you know, I doubt that that cost of living adjustment is going to keep up with what the true cost of living is. So that's another problem and something we need to think about in the context of a financial plan. Okay. All right. Well, thank you. Well, you're very welcome. And so we wish you the best. And so as Isabel said, there are a lot of things that uh, might impact this decision that we didn't have time to touch on on the radio. We didn't talk about children, uh, their health, their needs, whether or not it's going to be a problem for maybe some legacy planning goals that you may or may not have. Uh, We didn't talk about how the money, the other money is invested. All of these things would play a big part in helping you make that right decision. So you can reach out to a financial advisor. We have offices around Connecticut. If you'd like to uh, let us sit down with you and try to give you the answers that you're looking for. Let us know if we can help you. Take a look at our website at rickedelman.com for the latest seminar schedule all over the country. Seminar on helping you prepare for retirement. The education you need to make sound decisions. Triple H, Plan Rick, online at ricedelman.com. Learn how to diversify your investments. Try Rick's free guide to portfolio selection at rickedelman.com. Welcome back to the program. Rick Edelman here. We're taking telephone calls. Joining me in that effort is Branda Bell. It's Brandon Corso and Isabel Barrow, two of my colleagues here from Edelman Financial Services. Let's uh, head out to Warren, Vermont, and talk with John. Welcome to the program, John. How are you? Excellent. Thank you for taking my call. Happy to. How can we help? Okay. My son's going to be a senior this year in high school. I've been throwing money in his the state 529 plan. And um, so we're looking a year out. I'll need the money. When I started, it was only in a, um, uh, you know, an age-based portfolio, and now there's more choices. And I'm thinking about switching it all over to the Treasury obligation um, choice because you know, I need the money in a year. And um, I know I'm miss- with lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo, and we lost track of time. <gasps> No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. 
Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It's a little maybe miss a little upside, but I'd rather protect. I'm thinking I'd rather protect the money instead of taking a hit and just put it in the treasuries for a year. Mm-hmm. And I want to know your thought on this uh, strategy. You want to know if that's the right thing to do or not. Uh, so let's go backwards a little bit, make sure everybody understands what we're talking about. John said that his son was in an age-based portfolio. What does that mean? Age-based is one of the options inside a 529 plan, and that allows you to pick an investment that's tied to the age of the, the student or the child. So as they're getting older and closer to needing those funds for college, it starts to roll down the amount of, of stock and increasing the level of bonds. It's just another way of having a simplified portfolio instead of having to pick the specific investments yourself. In other words, the younger the child, the more risk they can take, the more they should have their money invested in stocks. As they age, you should reduce the amount of stocks. And that's what these age-based portfolios do for you on an automatic basis. So Brandon, uh, is John right in now that his son's a year away from college to start to move the money to cash and get rid of market risk? Absolutely. And I like the way John said it. He basically said, look, I'd be willing to give up potential upside over the next year or so to protect against the downside. And so nobody knows if a year from now the markets will be higher or lower. But it, the safest thing to do is say, well, I'm going to move to cash in case it's lower. So investing, we've always said, whether it's college expenses in this case or buying a house, whatever the expense is, if you need it in the near term, if you need it in six months, 12 months, 24 months, to heck with taking risk. So I like John's idea. Put it in a treasury money market. It can't grow, but so be it. It can't fall. I'd be interested to know how much you have in the 529 plan already. So the 529 plan is uh, just over 40000 right now. And so in the age base, um, now at the age of 17, it looks like their age base is 30% equities, 20% treasuries, and 50% bonds. And that could still take a hit, I'm thinking, if interest rates go up. So that's why... I have this option to move within the plan to the treasury portfolio. Right. And with 40000 in the balance and over the coming years, next year being the first year of school, how much do you expect that you're going to need from there? Uh, that, I don't know if I'll need all of it or not. It depends. You know, we're still just in the, in the starting uh, phases. And so that's really the interesting notion here is, Brandon, you said that you totally agreed, uh, and I agree too, uh, John, with your idea that with only a year to go before spending the money, that the money should be moved more safely. But Brandon, you said something in passing, six months, 12 months, even 24 months. Is John a little tardy in making this decision? Should he have moved to cash even earlier since he's planning to use the money 12 months from now? (laughs) Well, obviously by waiting, it helped him. Right, the last twelve months we've right. been moving up in the market. Well, but, but we know you can argue with you, success. You can't argue with the success, <laughs> but yeah, um, I think leaving it thirty percent in equities has been more aggressive than we would have suggested. Now, I like what Isabel's asking, which is, you know, let's look at what you expect to withdraw in year one, in year two, in year three, and so on. And so, if the child goes to a, an expensive school and you think you're going to be withdrawing money in four years maybe even three years, maybe that's money you leave uh, with some stock or equity exposure. Um, But if it's going to be coming out soon, it's helped to be tardy, Rick. But I would say, yes, we are a little bit tardy. So in other words, John, you've got to identify 
exactly when you're going to use this money, because if your child isn't going to use the money until their junior or senior year, you don't have one year. You actually have three or four. And the average student now takes six years to graduate, not four. So that means the money could remain invested for another four or five years. So decide really how soon you're going to use the money. And to help you figure that out, it might make sense to sit down with a financial planner so that we can evaluate your total financial picture to determine what other cash resources you might have available. Because given the choice of two different buckets of money, uh, I think we'd agree that tapping into the 529 is something you should do last, not first. Okay. All right. I figured I'd cover his pizza tab for the first year. So. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you're being realistic about all this, John, and with a sense of humor. So, all right. Well, I really appreciate uh, uh, your answers and, and, and sort of, you know, confirming where I could look at my, what my other resources are and then decide when I'm going to pull the money and 24 months out before that, just uh, be a little safer with it. There you go, John. Thank you so much for calling. We really appreciate it. If you're facing this similar dilemma with your kids, Give us a call, 888-PLAN-RIC. That's 888-752-6742. We can help you figure out what your asset allocation ought to be for the college savings accounts. We can tell you when you should plan on withdrawing the money and which of your various resources the money should be best pulled from. And, of course, we can address the most fundamental question of all. Are you sure you ought to be sending the kid to that expensive school in the first place? Maybe not a question you want to ask us. So it's interesting that John uh, seems to be viewing all of this rather soberly uh, and I think very effectively and recognizing that a return of your money is equally important to return on your money. And he's anticipating correctly that he ought to be paying attention to risk in his investment strategy. But I was a little concerned when his answer to your question of how much money is in the account was only $40,000. Right. With the cost of tuition, room and board, you know, books in one year that could easily be depleted. So what's it going to do the other five years? Exactly. So unless the child has a scholarship lined up that we don't know about. Didn't uh, seem so. No, it did not. It seems like this account might be used up completely in the first year. What happens then? Great question. That's kind of where the planning should have been done on the front end to either figure out what school he should have been going to or what he could afford or what amount of money should have been going into the 529 years ahead. And that goes back to doing the planning in the very beginning, and maybe you can avoid these types of dilemmas that you're running into. So at what point, Brandon, do we need to have serious conversations with parents about these types of issues? Right away. And so time, more than anything else, is what's going to grow money. And so the difference between starting for a newborn, putting several hundred dollars away a month, uh, perhaps more, and waiting till the child is 5, 10, or later is dramatic. So I'd be curious to know when John started savings. But the lesson, if you're listening to this, is you need to start right away. You need to address it right away. Have somebody help you. And because there's a lot of options related to the 529 plans, we are now questioning for newborns whether the 529 plan is the best way to save for college. How much do you decide? How do you juggle how much goes into college as opposed to retirement. That can all be decided within the context of a financial plan, and any good financial advisor can help you make those decisions to keep you on track. And parents need to change their attitude about college for their children. Uh, at the moment, I believe that a great many parents have the attitude of, we will do whatever it takes to allow the child to go to whatever school they choose to go to without regard to the economic implication of that decision. Many parents completely abdicate 
the decision and leave it entirely in the hands of the 16 or 17 year old. Uh, and they have no comprehension, of course, of the financial implications of the decision making. I had one client uh, recently, I recalled, um, they uh, sent their kid to a terrific engineering school. The kid was accepted to two terrific engineering schools and the child chose one and by no coincidence it was further from home yeah, uh, i think right. that, i think that's the decision a lot of kids make yeah. uh, the other school was equally terrific uh in quality but the child wanted to go to this other school and the parents just said okay what was not taken into consideration is that the child could have gone to one of the schools completely free full ride wow and the child to whom that really didn't register as significant yeah. chose the other school and is now graduating with $53,000 of student loan debt. Wow. And only now, having recently graduated and in a new job, is beginning to understand the implication of the student loan debt, which is over 1000 bucks a month. Mm. All of it completely avoidable six years ago. And so parents need to recognize that college today isn't simply – letting the child go wherever they want, but instead to put it in the context of pretending your child wanted to buy a car. And if that child said they wanted to buy a Ferrari, I think every 17-year-old would say that. Very few parents would agree to that. Be a lot of laughter around uh, the table, I think. Yeah, absolutely right. So You're joking, right? That's e a exactly. I mean, you know, there's not a whole lot of difference between a Chevy uh, and a Ford, not a whole lot of difference between a Lincoln and a Cadillac. But if one of them is going to saddle you with massive financial implications into your future, uh, that needs to be taken into consideration. And I think we would all agree that whether the child chooses the Lincoln or the Cadillac, their life will be just fine. Whether they choose the Chevy or the Ford, their life will be just fine. And so parents need to put that into context as they engage with their children on this college planning decision. And if we can be of help, let us. Triple H Plan Rick. My colleagues and I will get you the answers you need to your questions. And a lot of it is confusing and daunting and challenging. And for you, first time you've ever faced it. But it's not the first time we have. Take advantage of our knowledge and experience. Have a wonderful rest of the weekend. I'm Rick Edelman. See you next week. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.